Hi, good afternoon. My name is Patrick Deneen. I'm an assistant professor in the politics department at Princeton University and a member of the advisory committee of the James Madison program. Uh, normally, I don't introduce uh, speakers uh, for the Madison program. That's usually the honor of Professor George or our acting director, Professor Whittington. But I, uh, uh, I was happy uh, to be asked uh, and honored to be asked to introduce today's speaker, who's a, uh, a very good friend of mine uh, from uh, uh, now uh, increasingly number of years going back. Uh, uh, our speaker today is Peter, Peter Lawler, uh, who teaches at Barry College. He's the Dana Professor of Government at Barry College and currently the chair at Barry College. Um, in addition to uh, uh, his august duties uh, at Barry College, he is also currently a member of the President's Council on Bioethics, as well as the editor of the Scholarly Quarterly Perspectives on Political Science. He's the author of nine books, um, including a very fine study of Tocqueville called The Restless Soul, um, a quirkily titled book called Postmodernism Rightly Understood, uh, and uh, a very fine book, uh, his most recent book, called Aliens in America, The Strange Truth About Our Souls. If, however, you really want to know the true Peter Lawler, uh, one can go uh, to, to research the depths of his intellect and his brilliant insight and his profundity uh, by visiting his website at Berry College, where one of his students has put up uh, roughly 100 of uh, his leading and most profound thoughts from his lectures and just to give you a taste of some of these, and I'm sure that you'll get more of a taste during his, today's lecture, uh, these are just four of, uh, of various of his quotes from his, uh, from his lectures that were recorded by a, by a loving student. Here's one. College football keeps people from revolting. <laughs> Ordinary life causes you to compromise. Don't lose any sleep over this. That's just the way it is. God is a big alien. And my favorite, and I'm sure what's true of today's lecture, I'm not making any of this up. Please join me in welcoming uh, Peter Lawler, who will be giving a lecture today entitled Tocqueville, Compassionate Conservatism, and Biotechnology. Well, I'm glad to be here. If you want to see some of these quotes in context, there's a book by, is this? Okay. If you want to see some of these quotes in context, there's a famous book by Ann Norton in your local bookstore on Amazon.com where she quotes me as being a ferocious Republican because I was quoted on this website as saying, Democrats hate theory. But I, but I said that while teaching Alexis de Tocqueville and my Democrats with, with a little d as opposed to aristocrats. <laughs> The truth of the matter is, Democrats with a BD like theory way too much. So the Republicans, since the time of FDR, have distinguished themselves by opposing public policy based on compassion. But lately, the compassion gap that separates our two parties has been narrowing in strange and unexpected ways. A Democratic president signed a bill ending the national government's responsibility for our key compassionate or redistributive public policy, welfare. This president also said the era of big government is over. The Democratic Party, following the lead of Bill Clinton, has become 
less compassionate, and more libertarian. Democrats have surrendered many of their reservations about the free market, and nobody really thinks that we are following FDR's lead, slouching towards socialism anymore. The Democratic Party is now, above all, the party of unrestricted personal freedom or permissiveness. The Republicans have become more compassionate insofar as they have become less libertarian or less morally indifferent. On moral or cultural issues, the Republicans are surely now our more statist party, calling for government regulation when it comes to abortion, biotechnology, marriage, the family, and so forth. Much of that regulation is opposed to the cruel suffering caused by moral indifference, by the libertarian idea that we can all live designer lives free from the influence of and dependence on others. So some Republican activism is now animated by compassion for unborn and neglected children. But some is also animated by what biotechnology might do to the attachments and institutions that make human life worth living, to marriage, family, friendship, community, and the souls of particular persons. So the Republicans are just beginning to be moved by Alexis de Tocqueville's thought, which he borrowed or ripped off from Pascal, that even or especially prosperous and free Americans might deserve our compassion. And the most astute Republicans even see that our creeping and sometimes creepy libertarianism, unchecked, will make us so deserving of compassion that the result will inevitably be an unprecedented and particularly intrusive form of statism, something much closer to the soft despotism Tocqueville feared than anything we've experienced so far. Now, the idea that sophisticated Americans, the Americans David Brooks calls the bourgeois bohemians, might particularly need our compassion deserves some, compa some explanation. Because at first glance, Tocqueville seems to be right. Democracy drifts towards apathetic individualism and towards a world where free and prosperous people can neither feel nor need much compassion. Maybe our two base, uh, best philosophic social critics in recent years, Alan Bloom and Richard Rorty, seem to agree that sophisticated Americans are nicer or more politely apathetic than ever before, which means they are more moved, unmoved by love and death than human beings have ever been. Now, the only difference between Bloom and Rorty is Bloom hates that fact, or hated it, and Rorty likes it. They disagree on the values, but not on the facts. Now, we have to admit it. Sophisticated Americans talk in a, so not Americans like you and me, but sophisticated Americans do talk in a very accepting or non-judgmental way. They sound quite indifferent to the moral distinctions of the past. They say that not only must there be no laws against what consenting adults decide to do, we must really, deep down, not care what consenting adults do. So we have to say, as they do on Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that, but we have to feel in our hearts there's nothing wrong with that. 
So choices that used to be thought to be fought with consequences about love and human responsibility, such as who to have sex with and why, are now called preferences, sexual preferences. Sophisticated Americans talk as if they live, as the social critics say, after virtue or without good and evil. Now, from one point of view, this movement from compassion to libertarianism, kind of morally indifferent libertarianism, wouldn't have surprised Tocqueville. He thought that modern democracies would be characterized by compassion. People would become similar enough that we would have no trouble feeling each other's pain, as the great president said. But he said that compassion, Tocqueville said that compassion, a very diluted form of love, would ordinarily not rouse citizens up enough to actually help each other out. Compassion instead would have the tendency to level the remaining human distinctions to make government and society more egalitarian. So when we look at Democrats with a big D today, they remain easily moved by stories of racism and homophobia, as they should be. But they also believe that all is required to alleviate sex cruelty is for people to become more tolerant or accepting. There is no need for activism based upon love. All we need do is not hate. So we live in a time where at least we can say people don't hate so much anymore. But Tocqueville also reminds us that Americans will never be completely free from their puritanical or religious beginning. And if we look very closely, we can see a puritanical streak in sophisticated Americans today. They are moral fanatics, are quite unlibertarian when it comes to health and safety. When it comes to health and safety, they're not only moralists, they're paranoid prohibitionists. We are no longer pro-choice when it comes to seat belts or helmets. Diving boards have disappeared from the land. We demand that government protects us from the dangers, the government protects us from the dangers of secondhand smoke, even at the expense of our liberty to smoke. We have lost the right to supersize. And in general, we are just awakening to what government can do to protect us from the empty calorie culture of death of the fast food industry and trans fatty Oreo cookies. <laughs> but my favorite example is just one I've discovered in the last couple of days. The state of Georgia is just like Princeton, for that matter, is rife with great inflation, which means no one cares about the effect on students' souls of unearned self-esteem. So the report card, if you go to class and don't hit the teacher, you pretty much get all A's. Uh, but they're getting stern in one area, body mass index. And so now, so now the report card will have a bunch of A's and the body mass index. <laughs> and in that area, inflation will be a bad thing. So I have named this program in Georgia because no one else will name it the No Child Left With a Behind program. 
to those. So you agree with me when I say the one area in which sophisticated Americans don't even claim to be laid back or non-judgmental in their personal lives is health and exercise. Even or especially the most postmodern among your Princeton professors, those who say that modern science is nothing but a dogma of domination, exercise in the most disciplined and scientific way. So here are the facts. There are two kinds of individualism in America today. That apathetic, non-judgmental heart disease in, in the emotional sense, kind of individualism described by Tocqueville, corresponds roughly to what we say about our souls. And Lockean or aggressive and obsessive individualism corresponds to what we say or especially what we do when it comes to our bodies. So the American example today does not confirm Tocqueville's prediction that people in a democracy would gradually surrender any concern about the details of their lives, their futures. We are more future-obsessed than ever before, which is a great theme of the books of David Brooks. We're on Paradise Drive. We don't know how to live in the present. The present is heck for us. And so the decay of the institutions and attachments like religion, local community, and family that helped Americans get their minds off themselves and extend their hearts to others has not really produced apathetic indifference. It has produced self-obsession and obsessive concern with one's own future as an individual. We think of ourselves as individuals more of the time than ever before. Now, to tell you the truth, Tocqueville said democracy leads to individualism, apathetic individualism, but he also described the Americans as the most restless people ever. They're so restless they have no real leisure. I'd like to talk about this for a couple of days, but I'm not going to, except to say that description where Tocqueville says we have no real leisure, it wasn't so true in his day. It is really true in our day. This book has this weird characteristic of becoming more true every day. Okay. And... Uh, that can be explained, I think, by Pascal. Americans are engaged in two activities, one, trying to conquer death through their incessant efforts, and number two, diverting themselves from what they really know, which is they can't really conquer death. Uh, so as I'm sure you remember, Pascal's big category is diversion. So... We are constantly at work securing our designer lives against the blind and pitiless nature that is out to kill us. But we are also constantly at work diverting ourselves from what we really know about the futility of our efforts. And one way Tocqueville characterizes our diversion is by saying democracy is moved by the indefinite perfectibility of man. We get our minds off our individual puniness by thinking that the species as a whole will perfect itself somewhere down the line, that we can overcome the limits that characterized the past. So I once, it took me a long time to figure out what Tocqueville meant by the indefinite perfectibility of man. But then I looked it up in the thought of the French revolutionary who first used the phrase, and that's Condorcet. Remember Condorcet. And here's what Condorcet says. Indefinite perfectibility will come when the average span of human life will have no assignable value. 
when the length of your life is so indefinite, it no longer limits you. Uh, that our lives will become so long that we will literally not be able to count the days. So depriving death of its assignable value would be the culmination of modern progress. We can deprive death of its ugly power over us by making this prospect perfectly indefinite. Then all our anxiety, all our contingency, all our restlessness will disappear and we will be completely at home in the world. Finally, we modern people can relax. So a stock criticism of Marx is that there will still be scarcity of time under communism. So every other kind of scarcity will disappear, but scarcity of Marx is refuted. But Condorcet holds open the promise that the key human scarcity, scarcity of time, will wither away. So it's easy to see why our libertarians see biotechnology as the compassionate way to bring compassion to an end. Condorcet was very vague about how the improvement of medical practice could lead to the end of infectious hereditary diseases and so forth, although he predicted that. But today, biotechnology really does promise to make the time of our deaths very indefinite. Maybe all genetically based diseases can be cured, and maybe that's most diseases. Maybe that's all diseases. And regenerative medicine may be able to rejuvenate every bodily organ. So the idea of the indefinite perfectibility of our species is more alive in our democracy than ever, and biotechnology is now at the heart of our imagination about what human perfectibility will be. So the big question of our time is this. Will the biotechnological achievement of indefinite longevity really free human beings from the restlessness, from their anxiety, their experiences of contingency, their experiences of vulnerability, of being moved by death? Or do we really have any evidence that biotechnology can produce anything but an intensification of our restless experiences as individuals? So Condorcet says that ordinarily we would not be affected by death. The exception would be extraordinary accidents. So there would be the ordinary death-free world and the extraordinary or accidental world where death intrudes. So death, if you think about it, no longer experienced as necessity for us all, will only become an accident to be avoided. Our experience will be that no one need die anymore, but it's still possible for a healthy person to be blown up in a million pieces in an accidental explosion. So if you think about it, we would all move into lead houses and never go outside. So... The near disappearance of death as necessity actually makes our lives seem more accidental. We can see that already. We don't have to look into the biotechnological future. Sophisticated Americans today obsess more than people ever have about children's safety, over-organizing their lives to free them from risk, including even the risk of playing unsupervised with other children. We try harder than ever to protect our children from even a touch of the state of nature, the nature from which we Lockeans are perpetually free. So now there are so few deaths in childhood that no sophisticate 
thinks of death of a child as necessity or as God's will anymore, but as only as a terrible accident that might somehow have been avoided. So it is becoming more and more irresponsible not to plan almost all the time to keep our children's lives ordinary or predictable. One reason sophisticated people worry more about their children now is the children have become rarer than ever. Americans on the cutting edge have caught up to the more advanced Europeans who don't come anywhere near replacing themselves. In fact, if it were not for religiously observant Americans, our birth rate would be the same as France. You may have noticed, France is fading away. Now, it used to be in low-tech and less individualistic times that people lived well enough with the fact that many or most of their children would not become healthy adults. Parents might think themselves lucky or blessed to go, say, five for ten. But going five for ten is infinitely better than going 0 for one, which is the prospect more worried parents than ever, like me, I'm criticizing myself here, face today. From one view, uh, one view, people today have just one or two kids so they can plan adequately for their future and secure their futures properly from the various risks of life. But from another view, that prudence leaves parents more open to chance than ever. No one would deny that today's paranoid parents deserve our compassion. Now, parents do love their children when they finally choose to have them because parents, like all of us, are really more than individuals. But they obsess over their children because they understand themselves too completely as individuals to be protected from nature and not as natural gifts to be loved with all their imperfections and limitations. Uh, so parents today are kind of tempted by or, or seduced by the success of medical science. As Leon Cass says, the greater our medical successes, the more unacceptable is failure and the more intolerable and frightening is death. And we can anticipate that this trend will continue. Childhood will continue to get objectively safer than ever, and parents will continue to become more anxious nonetheless. If the average lifespan is extended to, say, 200, the number of children to be born may have to be severely restricted. If people stop dying, there'll be no need or room for the replacements. Or maybe libertarians are right, and there will be no need for such a public policy because enlightened individuals will soon ch enough choose on their own to have virtually no children. I mean, they're already doing that. Or maybe, libertar or maybe uh, libertarians are wrong because uh, maybe that prediction is wrong because some people also anticipate that parents of the future will have the unprecedented pleasure of using genetic enhancements to design their children as they please. It's just like design the house, get a Get to go down my auto deal, design a car, and then design the kid. Uh, but there'll be a certain limit to designing, and that will be health and safety, that thing we're paranoid and prohibitionist about. Individual parents will usually, doubtless, usually make safe choices voluntarily, of course. But we will not allow obsessive or perverse parents to choose deafness for their children or even less than the highest possible IQ. Because deafness and stupidity are unavoidable or, or uh, undeniable and avoidable risk factors. We can also anticipate that having babies the old-fashioned way, two married people having unprotected sex, then hoping and praying for the best, may well become illegal. 
that natural approach may well involve unacceptable risks. So the law will be used, I think, to ensure that babies are as perfect or as risk-free as babies can be at any particular time. So uh, we certainly will not uh, be able to allow Catholics and Mormons to have hordes of unenhanced little monsters. Such stupid and disease-ridden kids be nothing but a burden on society and a danger to us all. In other words, I may, let me repeat this point. It could well be that people who are pro-life now will become pro-choice, and here will be their pro-choice principle. Okay, you guys can abort and enhance all you want, but we're not going to do it. And they will be defeated by the pro-life principle that health and safety trumps everything else. In other words, perversely, the pro-life people become pro-choice, and there'll be this perverse new pro-life principle, risk-averse pro-life principle. So we can anticipate the government will work harder and harder to stamp out unsafe sex, even invading, in Justice Douglas's memorable phrase, the sacred precincts of marital bedrooms. The present limit to our libertarianism, obsession about health and safety, I think will lead to a progressively more intrusive statism. So biotechnology combined with our present libertarianism points to our surrender to choose, of our freedom to choose, in the most intimate parts of our lives. We are tempted to say that's the route by which Lockean individualism, that aggressive bodily individualism I talked about, culminates in the soft or apathetic, non-judgmental, passive uh, despotism Tocqueville fears. Government will teach us to want wholly predictable, irrational, ordinary, risk-free lives. It will gently lead us, as Tocqueville fears, to give up control over ourselves, real self-government, because we will finally prefer security to liberty or because we find anxious liberty unendurable. That won't really happen. It's difficult to see how any public policy can lead us to surrender our personal anxiety or stop deserving compassion. We will remain all too aware that government cannot give us the risk-free, laid-back existence for which we think we long. As Marx would say, the persistence of the state, and the state will get bigger, not smaller, will be evidence that human beings remain alienated. So the achievement of indefinite longevity, contrary to Condorcet's hope, will show us that Tocqueville was right, that is, Pascal was right to say, that the fundamental modern or democratic experience is a disorientation that comes with a perception of limitless independence. Biotechnological success will not really make our lives less morally demanding. All it will do is make virtue and spiritual life more difficult to acquire. As individuals, we will become more and more detached from our natural fulfillment or orientation that comes from being parents. Life will become more child-free than ever. We will have fewer and fewer natural responsibilities to keep us from boredom and anxiety. And so our diversions will too often be merely diversions. We won't be able to divert ourselves from the fact that our diversions are diversions. Uh, the compassion we now feel for rich and healthy old people with nothing to occupy their time but recreation, more and more people will deserve. The main reason for our compassion will be the difficulty people will have in finding the resources to live virtuous or purposeful lives. So the practice of virtue is relatively easy if each human life 
has clearly, is clearly defined by its relatively short amount of time. Virtue is easy for us because we, just, we know how long we're here, more or less. We readily sacrifice and die for our children when we view them as our natural replacements. Their living beyond us is the only way we have of extending our limited natural beings. We seek immortal glory only when we see clearly that we are mortal, and immortal glory is the best deal we can get on the immortality front. Otherwise, we might agree with Woody Allen, who said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. Though Tocqueville thought that democracy might become the enemy of virtue because people would become too materialistic or too skeptical about all claims that any human accomplishment could stand the test of time, the people will become too aware of the fact that nothing endures. But it turns out that biotechnology might make us even more skeptical about mortality with even worse results, or about, more skeptical about our, our mortality with even worse results for personal excellence. Consider this. Tocqueville praises Socrates for taking the soul's immortality seriously. That's what distinguishes Socrates from the other philosophers. But we have to wonder how courageous Socrates would have been before the city of Athens had he just learned from his doctor that regenerative medicine could give him another 70 years. Now think about it. Even or especially for Socrates, courage means facing up to some truth about death. A Socrates busily and obsessively pursuing an indefinitely long life for himself might up to the moment of his rather ridiculous accidental death, which is what Francis Bacon actually did, might in fact deserve our compassion. Risk of one's own life or the lives of others for virtually any reason may make little or no sense if people's lives could potentially stretch out ahead of them indefinitely. And clinging desperately to the life, biotech, the life biotechnology offers has the potential to strip even the philosophers of their claims for nobility and happiness. But there's one possibility I haven't talked about. I'm going to have to talk about it very quickly. All right, biotechnology cannot free us from being moved by death. But there's another possibility, and that's mood control. Mood control might very effectively keep us from being moved by death. So biotechnology offers us the feel-good solution that we already see in uh, certain drugs like Prozac. But Prozac is bad, you know, it's unpredictable, but there'd be better ones. So even if biotechnology can't really push death back far enough to free us from our time-bound existence, it seems that we might readily take a pill have a nanobutt implanted, or nanobutts are fascinating, or, have, or submit to some kind of genetic ter therapy that would free us from our distinctively human or moody misery. Biotechnologically provided virtual freedom would certainly be more satisfying than any form of real freedom human beings will experience. And our objection that virtual reality is not reality at all will not be all that convincing despite the success of the first Matrix movie. Uh, and, and here's why. That's not going to convince us, because Tocqueville says we have a technological view of the truth. Or, or as Richard Rorty explains, we should call true whatever makes us comfortable. 
That view is supported by evolutionary biology, which shows us that we are not fitted by nature to know the truth anyway. Moods are nothing but chemical reactions. It makes no sense to say that one chemical reaction, which could be the product of a pill just as easily or more easily than doing a good deed or reading a great book, opens us to the truth about ourselves more than another. So there's no reason to agree with the morbid philosophers and poets that bad moods are more truthful than good moods. Isn't that stupid? Bad moods true, good moods false. Switch that. So Tocqueville would not have been plagued by his Pascalian moments had he been properly medicated. Pascal himself would have been a happy and productive mathematician and would not have fought himself to death. Our standards of mood control should be happiness and productivity. But there are problems, and I can only mention them quickly. Problem number one, if we get in too good a mood, then we'll stop caring about real technology. If if we if we're, don't worry, be happy, then death won't bother us. There'll be no consumers for real technology anymore, which means all sorts of things, including if an asteroid is about to pulverize our planet, we'll just yawn. That's not good. Or another way of looking at this is, if our moods get too good, the terrorists really will win. We won't care. And there's another problem. Uh, uh, that there's an aesthetic problem. If our moods are too good, there won't be any more art, poetry, or philosophy. So the people who write about this seriously, in a way, are, have this fairly bizarre idea that we should have designer moods. So we should have bad moods, but moods which aren't too bad. So you know, moods bad enough to produce art and make life a little bit interesting, but no morbid, no morbid moods, no melancholy, or no suicide, or no depression, or anything like that. But the third problem overwhelms the first two, and here it is. Beyond, behind all mood control is a really, really bad mood. Here is the theory of mood control. Life stinks unless I'm heavily medicated. So imagine what your real opinion of life would be if you really believed you couldn't get through the day without designing your mood. And so behind all efforts at mood control is a bad mood that can't be eradicated. If you eradicate the bad mood, mood control will stop. And here's what we notice. The other animals are perfectly content with the moods nature has given them. All right. But, I mean, and I like to talk about this a lot more. I just don't have time. But here's another obvious point. Mood control also will lead to tyranny. Okay. Let's say uh, Professor Deneen gets very uneven student evaluations because he's moody, and I've heard stories. Now, the dean or provost or whoever calls him in and says, Professor Deneen, if you want to stay here, get yourself down to the pharmacy, level that mood out. How can he say no in our libertarian world? The only way he could say no is something like this. Some moods put me in touch with the truth more than others. If he doesn't really believe that, he has to get down to the drugstore. So mood control may well be a requirement for employee, employment in any job that deals in human relations, which is about all jobs in a society such as ours. So another form of really unbelievable tyranny is around the corner there.
All right. And let me conclude. All right. Here's the good news. A lot of my friends on the Bioethics Council, like Leon Cass and Francis Fukuyama, not to mention the author of The Brave New World, thinks we're on the way to subhuman tyranny. And even Tocqueville thought that. But I don't think that. Tocqueville says our future choice is going to be between servitude and freedom. But here's the truth. We are going to remain free even as we become more dependent on technology than ever. In other words, we're going to have freedom and servitude. That dependence will be evidence of our freedom. No other animal can make itself totally dependent on technology. And so Tocqueville also says our choice is going to be between prosperity and misery. But let me tell you the truth. We're going to have plenty of both. So it's hard to know whether that's good news or not. But we're going to have plenty of prosperity and plenty of misery. So the good news is we're going to retain the greatness and misery characteristic of human liberty and have more of it than ever in certain ways. The bad news is we're probably not going to be very happy about it. So Tocqueville says, had he lived during a time of oppressive justice and poverty, during an aristocracy, he would have, without reservation, encouraged people to seek prosperity and develop technology. But now we Tocquevillian compassionate conservatives ask. We ask what this or that biotechnological advance will do to family, friendship, love, communal life, religion, virtue, all those things which really allow us to live well with suffering and death. Our obsessive and impossible pursuit of a risk-free world with no uncomfortable moods will in some ways make us more miserable and undignified than ever. And we conservatives will say in compassion that there is no biotechnological substitute for the cultivation of one's own soul. As Tocqueville says, we can deny and distort but not destroy the needs of our souls. And that's because those needs are not born of a caprice of man's will. They have their immovable foundation in man's nature. They exist despite his efforts. So Tocqueville observes that the natural human reaction to a too single-minded obsession with material well-being is a fierce spirituality. And we see plenty of countercultural evidence, especially in my part of the world, of fierce spirituality today. Just as we did, as Tocqueville reminds us, at the time when a sophisticated world was in the thrall of a mixture of Roman delights and Greek Epicurean philosophy. And we're going to see lots more fierce spirituality in America. But I tend to think there's no reason for friends of human dignity and believers in God to oppose biotechnological progress fanatically. No matter what human beings do, there will still be dignity and living well with our invincible limitations. And we shouldn't worry about dignified action getting too easy. And religion, just like the state, is not going to wither away. Thank you.
Professor Lawler has agreed to um, answer some questions. Um, I suppose one could summarize that lecture as a um, sweet pill coated uh, with bitter coating. Uh, but uh, uh, um, let me, uh, I think it's a tradition in the Madison program from my, my experience in past lectures to open the floor first to uh, students, either uh, undergraduate or graduate students. Are there any uh, in presence uh, who have uh, a question for Professor Lawler? Anyone at all? Yeah. In that case, uh, we can open up the floor to, uh, to the general audience. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm using the word libertarian in a deliberately contentious way, right? By libertarian, I don't mean that party that gets 0.1% of the vote, nor do I mean nerdy professor of economics. By libertarian, I mean someone who is pro-choice across the board, someone who's pro-choice, someone who's for the free market and pro-choice in all the great social and cultural questions. And in my opinion, the country is getting more libertarian all the time. There's a broad libertarian consensus uh, my dumb way of explaining this is there's a very little difference between a Clinton Democrat and a Schwarzenegger Republican. They are groping together for the truth. Yes. And so, I mean, so in other words, it's the, the tendency, in, in, it's a, or, or as Justice Kennedy says, what seems like tolerable limits to our, our, our liberty in one generation seems like tyranny to the next. Justice Kennedy is rightly criticized for saying this as a principle of judicial review. In fact, that's relatively insane. But as a sociological observation, it's not so far off in a way. So in other words, in my Tocquevillian, I'm, I'm actually for the free market and all that, but in my Tocquevillian tendency is to criticize the dominant current. And I think that is the dominant current. It, 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 uh, that would be a good beginning point, but, 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 but there's a problem. This is a big question. All right, there, there's a problem. In America, we have, the, the, we have it is re really roughly speaking right to say we have sexual, uh, not sexual or anything, we have uh, secular humanists and evangelicals, right? The, 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 the two great camps, and there's all sorts of people not in them, but the two great camps. Uh, you have the, the even you have the moral values of voters. So I'm trying to change that name to the virtue voters, who live in the exurbs, and they're mainly evangelicals. Although there's some Catholics, uh, some Mormons, some Orthodox Jews, and so forth, mainly evangelicals. There, uh, the religion will never be enough. I, I disagree with Tocqueville on, on this, and, and here's why. Uh, the way of life I described of the sophisticated American really is nihilism in the way Heidegger describes nihilism. The only thing real is what we can calculate about, what we can measure, 
what we can know rationally in the sense of technological reason. Everything else is a whim or a preference. So our sophisticates say to the evangelicals, sure, you can have your opinions, but your opinions are just your religious whims or preferences. They don't have anything to do with the common life American share. The common life American share is nothing but the free individual constrained by health and safety. Uh, so uh, the evangelicals, if there are any, I don't know if there are any evangelicals in New Jersey or not, but the evangelicals have to stop talking in terms of worldviews. There's the biblical worldview, and then there's a secular worldview, which they identify with individualistic, individualistic relativism, the sophisticated worldview I describe. But in fact, neither of these views is completely true. What we need is not so much religion today, but what we need uh, to praise Professor George is something like natural law. That is, our view of technological reason does not describe the way human beings are according to what we can see with our own eyes. So our evangelicals are going to have to stop seceding from public life and start developing language appropriate for public life. Uh, so uh, Tocqueville, Tocqueville seemed, I'm, I'm disagreeing with Tocqueville a lot today, uh, seemed to say America was partly Lockean and partly biblical, with one set of excesses checking the other. It, we, it's too late for that to work. We have to say Lockeanism is wrong, in effect. We have to say that the view of the isolated individual fighting against hostile nature is not a, a, anywhere near a complete description of what a human being is. In other words, we have to give a secular argument for virtue again. Because the only way we can live well is through virtue. And the trouble is uh, our individualism is undermining those experiences that produce virtue, the experiences we have as friends, as family members, as citizens, neighbors, and creatures, and all that. So I think religion, religion is, is a check, but religion is going to have to become more self-conscious, more... Right, so right now, the, I mean, uh, and, and more rational. So right now the evangelicals are picking up members all the time and losing the culture war nonetheless. Okay, okay. Fanatically, well, let, me, let me say we should fight them reasonably. The fanatical fight is kind of the Nietzschean last man fight. That is, if we don't fight, then humanity will disappear. That we're fighting for the very future of humanity. My response is, give me a break. Humanity has a future. That's not our problem. And if you see, see I mean, we should, we should fight resolutely but rationally keeping in mind that the real fight is over how to live well, not the very existence of human beings. In other words, uh, human, we're, we're in, in a limited sense more human than we've ever been before. That is more future obsessed than we've ever been before. Uh, this Bloom caricature of the sophisticated American living beyond love and death, I think is utter baloney. Uh, I think the error, say, of Alan Bloom was to confuse what we say with what we actually experience. 
For example, in Bloom, there was a, a, a two-page section that contradicted everything else he said in the book, where he said, number one, the key, uh, we're, we're disconnected, and so the key, the, the, the sign of our time, the phenomenon of our time, is to be a child of divorce. And then he says, well, the child of divorce uh, has a chaotic soul, and so Nietzsche should be his philosopher. Well, if the child of divorce is the sign of our time, then the soul of our time is the chaotic soul. That is the soul that doesn't have the words that corresponds to its experiences. So uh, Bloom said rock and roll is all about mechanical running. I say rock and roll is all about anger. Right. In other words, uh, so in other words, and we're angry because we're miserable and don't know why. That is not a corresponding growth and happiness with the core with a big happiness doesn't grow as our wealth, power, and freedom grows. Right? So I'm not I'm for resolute and reasonable resistance, but I think this kind of fear that humanity itself is in play is not true. Is, is that good enough? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'm all for it. Uh, how, does, how does curiosity uh, fit into all of this? And uh, the answer would be that as long as you understand nature as something to be conquered, uh, you can't separate curiosity from control. I mean, curiosity depends on you becoming somewhat unself-obsessive. Relaxing a bit about the future of your own being, experiencing you know, anxiety, contingency, all these experiences uh, mean you, you just don't relax enough to be curious, right? So curious require, curiosity requires a certain kind of self-detachment, de, uh, which is rare today. So it, it, isn't it true, if you read David Brooks or someone like that, that all these bobos are about every experience being educational, but they're so frenzied about that, you know, you know I am going to take a vacation to the rainforest and, and learn, learn, learn about what goes on there and everything. But curiosity is something that's more natural. And so the experience of the modern individual, to say that the experience of the modern individual is your whole experience is to deny that curiosity is anything real. When in fact, perhaps the most fundamental human, well, one of the most, to me, the two most fundamental human moods that aren't specifically Christian, like humility, would be wonder and gratitude. And, and the, the tendency of modern individualism is to deny the reality of wonder and gratitude, that we have nothing to be grateful for. Like Locke says, nature gives us almost worthless materials. Well, we, we should hate nature's guts, and by implication, hate God's guts. So I'm all for curiosity, and uh, in fact, that was a subtext. I rooted that out. I'm all for curiosity. That is, I'm all for philosophy in the old-fashioned sense. Yeah, what a, what, a, what a tough question. Uh, in, in the first place, uh, let, let me make clear, my, my, my use of the title compassionate conservatism is 
just me. It has nothing to do with Mr. Olasky and other, other brilliant experts of that kind. Uh, it's because I said that the new Republican Party, insofar as it has a distinctive identity, is compassion for rich and successful Americans because they're experiencing themselves as accidents more of the time than ever. Uh, so in other words, a kind of compassion uh, that people deserve because they're miserable without God. This actually has not shown up in Bush's speeches a whole lot yet, although I've, I've talked to them about this. But, uh, you know, we have to, but uh, the other kind of, uh, the, but your point would be that one reason American compassion slides into indifference is government centralizes in the name of justice. And so I'm more ambivalent on, cent on centralization than some because if you actually look at the, uh, the record of centralization, uh, a lot of it has to do with civil rights, and I'm for civil rights, right? So Tocqueville predicted this, that the, the justice would, would cause things to move to the center. Because tell, you, tell the truth, if you wanted your rights protected, would you want, uh, if I ask my students, the government of Floyd County to protect your rights? I mean, give me a break. Or would you want the government in Atlanta a little better? Or would you want the government in D.C.? I mean, there are problems with them all, but I still I'd go to the government in D.C., I think. Uh, but the problem is, uh, is that you actually don't know other particular human beings. You can't feel the pain of all Americans, but as Tocqueville says, you can't feel the pain of the people in your neighborhood. And so if powers were devolved locally, then... You know, Tocqueville is great on this. Uh, the, the, you know, local public policy in America develops out of self-interest. So you want a bridge. So you go to your neighbor and say, I'm feeling your pain, how miserable you might be without a bridge. Uh, but he's, but you, you start faking it. But then if you actually visit your neighbor a lot and pretend like you like him, you start to like him after a while. And so, uh, so you know, local government enlarges the heart. The, the, the big question is whether these things actually can be devolved now. You'd have to ask an expert on on these matters. My wife uh, was very reluctant to vote for President Bush the last time because she runs a faith-based initiative and she hears all the rhetoric about faith-based initiatives, but there's no money given to any faith-based initiatives. But that's a story for another day. Peter, can I yeah. sort of follow on um, yeah. the sort of partisan dimension of this question? Mm -hmm. uh, it touches on a long-standing debate that we've been having, but, but um, you described in, in response to a question earlier, libertarianism as sort of thoroughgoing libertarianism, the economic and in the social sphere. And what's, what's interesting about that description of libertarianism, it doesn't really describe any political party in the United States other than that one, you know, half of a percent, uh, um, and maybe not even that. Uh, so you have, on the one hand, the Democratic Party, which is, uh, and you, you suggested that during the Clinton years, they moved toward a more economic libertarian perspective. But I think it'd be, it'd be hard-pressed to say they were completely economic libertarian. And I think in contemporary debates about taxation, Social Security and the like, he would still have to say that the Democratic Party is less economically libertarian than the Republican Party. And on the other side, you have the Republican Party, which is uh, socially, uh, in, in terms of social issues, uh, less libertarian than, than certainly the elites of the Democratic Party. So here's, here's the question. If one wants to combat, except in your analysis, libertarianism in America today, which party should one align oneself with? The obvious one might be the Republican Party if you hold social issues as, in a sense, the core issues that have to be combated and, and, uh, uh, and sort of following up on Evan's question a little bit. And yet I wonder if that analysis is altogether true. Um, you know, here maybe I can reveal a little bit of my own Marxism, but Marx's analysis at the beginning of the Communist we only Manifesto, want to see a little, just a little. Uh, in which he says in a sense that, that, uh, that free markets will corrode and disrupt and destroy all traditional ways of life. There seems to be at least an argument there 
And it seems, in the kernel of truth, even in the, the web of inaccuracies of Marx's analysis, that suggests that perhaps the problem that, of all of the social uh, libertarianism might have as its root the deep and pervasive, uh, in a sense, corrosiveness of the free market in the American society. Might not there be an argument that if you have to choose sides in contemporary American partisan terms, that you might rather be with the Democratic Party? No. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate on that? <laughs> oh, you want more. All right. Uh, you know, as a, a student is on an exam, you put a question exactly that way, they will, like, you know, wait for oh, you. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, no. Okay. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the free market for its own sake. On the other hand, if you've got to choose between free market and big government, I'll go free market. Uh, big government is, is much worse for local community. Uh, for example, uh, the, the, the great war against human particularity, human individualist, individual, uh, human individuality and all that now is being raised by, uh, being by politically correct experts. Now, politically correct experts will inevitably dominate big government, uh, which is why, uh, you know, I wish we could have good public schools. I really do. And I really think it's a shame that people take their kids out of the public schools and homeschool them. But the reason they do it is public schools just can't be good now. In other words, because they're dominated by politically correct big government. So I'd rather have a sleazy businessman than a bureaucrat. Uh, to, 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 uh, and not that all businessmen are sleazy or anything like that, but, but I'd rather have a, 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 a sleazy businessman than a competent bureaucrat in a way. But, okay, and, uh, number one. And number two, this, this libertarianism thing is, this, uh, Patrick's remarks presuppose that the Democrats still care about the poor. Uh, and I would concede that perhaps Gephardt did, uh, and that's why he didn't get anywhere. That is, a Democratic Party uh, that we Catholics, did, uh, I, I really am a 1959 Democrat, which is why I hate the Democratic Party now. You know, you know I'm, not, I'm, not one of these, I'm not an isolationist guy. I'm not a libertarian guy. I even think the New Deal is constitutional. Uh, but... <laughs> which hardly any Republican, all of a sudden we think we can, you know, we can declare unconstitutional everything that contradicts an economics textbook. Uh, but having said that, the, the Democratic Party is all about protecting universal entitlements, and that's it. They're not about redistribution anymore. Give me a break. If they were, I'd, I'd want to listen, I think, but they're not. So, I mean, the argument over Social Security is, you know, over a universal entitlement. Prescription drugs, who gets them? I'm not taking any stance on these issues. I'm just calling attention to these facts. Uh, there were there some really good things about the Republican tax cut for the family. Someone with three kids and makes 50000 a year now pays no federal tax. I'm not even sure this is a good idea, uh, but that wasn't thought up by the Democrats. So I just don't see, in other words, uh, I have a lot of admiration for the Democratic Party of FDR. I have a little bit of admiration for Lyndon Johnson, although only a little and only for one or two things, but it's better than none. But I don't see any of those qualities in the Democratic Party now. I, I wish I did, but I, I don't. Uh, what, what was Kerry's position on any economic issue? Bush is incompetent. 
there were, there were, uh, that, that was the strongest position, actually. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of incompetence in Bush's economics plan. I voted for Bush. It wasn't hard for me to vote for Bush, nonetheless, I have to admit. There is a lot of incompetence in Bush's economic policy, but the Kerry said we, the Kerry campaign on the basis of compassion, that is, compassion producing redistribution by government. I actually do think in some deep way that's misplaced compassion, but there was something admirable about that that's not in either party now, because in fact, what, what really happened, and this is a, like all, all trends, is both good and bad. You have the libertarianism of the 60s, that is, the, the all kinds of freedom, you know, uh, libertarian merged with the bourgeois libertarianism of Reagan's 80s, and that's what we have now. And so what was good about the 60s, that was all that heartfelt stuff. I mean, there were some good things about that. That I was killed by the Reagan stuff. And that what was good about Reagan, that is the tough stance, the moral issues, hasn't been killed, but it's, it's only because of the personal resolution of President Bush that's powerful in the Republican Party now. Bush is, oddly enough, the most Catholic president we've ever had, although, uh, Press yeah. So you, there's one little question there and one very complicated question. All right, I mean, I'll, I'll grant you there may have been that small difference, but that, mean, that means Kerry is a pale remnant of the proud redistribution Democratic Party because, in fact, his rhetoric I, I don't think was particularly aimed at the poor, but make, making us all seem anxious about health care. And I'm not denying we, we have reasons to be anxious about health care. I'm not going to make, take any public policy stand. And maybe if that's the only thing you care about, that would be a reason for choosing Kerry over Bush. But because that difference, I think, is relatively small, uh, you know, some, a 1959 Democrat like me, who I actually don't think Kerry's health care plan was good, but if it was good, I still wouldn't have voted for him because I think these social and cultural issues are so much more important. Number two, unlock. Uh, 
uh, my short answer is I'm not really talking about what Locke actually said because we could divide up into small groups and talk all night about that. I'm talking about kind of the effectual truth of Locke or Lockeanism or the individualism which has transformed our country gradually over time. But not only that, I think that's what Locke intended. I think Locke, Locke's real project was to reconstruct all human life under on, on, on the, on, on the model of calculation, consent, and control. If you read what he says about the family and the relationships between parents and children, love it takes a hike, honor means, uh, you know, if your parents raise you well, you have to pay them back. But there's obviously a first performer problem there. Uh, and so in the world, uh, so Locke's real teaching to the rich, to the old, uh, is you better be rich when you get older. You're in big, big trouble in my world. Uh, which you can't deny that's true. And then in, in the key chapter, the characteristic chapter in everything Locke wrote is of property in, in the second treatise where God is replaced by money. God is mentioned 19 times, money comes up, God disappears for the rest of the chapter. This is not a small thing. Well, yeah, we, I would like to answer that, but I better not. Yes, sir. Sir, uh, since uh, many of your problems go back down to the advance of biotech technology in our world, and the advance of science in our world, could you just simply shut it down and stop it? No. I'm all for the advance of science. And in fact, uh, you might want to say this, uh, that in general, the world is always getting better and worse. And what I described to you today was a rather large downside of the advance of science, but we're not going to be able to stop it. For example, if indefinite longevity becomes technically possible, we will have it. We're not going to have some kind of pro-death policy, especially as voters get older and older. I mean, who's going, to be, who's going to be voting on these policies about an aging electorate? And so these things can't, I mean, there, there are certain areas of morality, there certain things you want, want to avoid doing. But in general, these things will happen. So I'm not, I'm not, being against these things happening is like being against the rain in a way. So yeah, but, but I was, but I'm, I'm going to stick with what I said, that is. It will always be the case that human beings to live well with, uh, the limits of their natural existence will require virtue, and virtue will be harder to acquire than ever. So we live, even today, sophisticated Americans live in a world where they have everything but an account of virtue that makes sense to them. They don't know how to talk about those things, and that's going to get worse. Well, my answer would be, is there any end? My answer would be no. Science progresses indefinitely. I mean, it really is true. Unless, unless we conquer the entire cosmos and bring all of being under our control. And, you know, anyone who believes in God will doubt that's possible. And anyone with any lick of sense will doubt that that's possible. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, but you're on my wavelength here, but I'm saying that 
our libertarian inclinations combined with our health obsession will produce new forms of statism. Not communism, exactly. Commun communism is too noble, as Professor Lee pointed out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the Democratic Party makes a comeback. It will be on the basis of defense of universal entitlements. Uh, the amazing thing is that Bush got reelected. Uh, we got to tell the truth, even though he messed up the Iraq War and is the most inarticulate president we've ever had, and he still won. This is pretty amazing, which must mean the issues were really on his side for people to look beyond messed up war, can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his performance in the first debate, but well, he was way ahead in the polls before the first debate, and his performance in the first debate and I, was shameful. It was terrible. And he only got better in the second two debates when they started to ask real guy questions. Kerry was terrible on real guy questions. <laughs> and Bush was okay. When they asked about religion, same-sex marriage, your family, so Kerry was asked a question about his wife and answered with his mom. <laughs> and, uh, I can't begin to touch that, you know, but... <laughs> So about, this is actually something I've, I've talked to the Bush people about. If, if people believe Bush is out to save Social Security, he will be a hero. If they believe he's out to kill Social Security, that will devastate the Republican Party. I'm not talking about the objective merits of the thing, but people like universal entitlements. Everyone gets it. So a lot of Bush's advisors want to use this moment to kill it. Bush himself... Uh, wants to save it. And how I know he wants to save it? He says he will accept a restructuring of the tax to save it. Uh, the Republicans in Congress say, last time I looked, no tax increase, no how, no way for anything. That means they want to kill it. If the perception is that the Republicans want to kill Social Security, the Democrats in that one issue will make a comeback. Now, the Democrats will be a very, very conservative party then. They'll be the defender of existing universal entitlements. This is not a very noble stand, but nonetheless will work in the short term. Other than that, the issues the Democrats have are pretty much the incompetence of the Republicans. Like, they, they have no stand on the Iraq war except Bush waged it incompetently. Uh, they, they don't really have an alternative foreign policy. And I think there could be one. They just happen not to have one. And uh, on, the, on the social and cultural issues, uh, abortion, same-sex marriage, and so forth, the Democrats are now perceived as the extremists because they have to defend the exceedingly individualistic libertarian court. Uh, the, this, uh, that, uh, the Lawrence v. Texas is really devastating for the Democrats because there's just no moderation there at all. And that was a case, obviously, the Massachusetts court drew upon. Uh, because the average American doesn't, doesn't know why laws say, uh, saying that marriages between a man and a woman are unconstitutional. You might even think they're wrong, but unconstitutional, give me a break. Yeah, so in other words, on those issues, the Democrats now are perceived as the extremists. 
So the best thing that could happen for the Democratic Party and the best thing that could happen for pro-choice people, although I don't want to help them particularly, is for Roe v. Wade to be reversed, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, uh, Michael? Yeah. Uh, you see the ambivalent prospect of extending the That's so as I get older. <laughs> No, no, I agree. I, I, I don't know if we have a moral obligation. We, we have a moral obligation not to intentionally kill anyone. So obviously, I, I'm, I'm a radical against rationing health care, actually. And if, if, there, if there's a technological means to extend life, it should be made available to people. I, got, I agree with you. No problem. As long as it doesn't do anything morally repulsive. I mean, so I'm against... Uh, killing embryos to do this and so forth. But, uh, but aside from things like that, I'm for it. And even if I weren't for it, it wouldn't make any difference. Yeah. Yeah, sure. What would be the argument against that exactly? What do you have? I don't know what you're talking about exactly. Is there, I, don't, I don't know what the morally problematic thing you're alluding to here is. No, it just seems at the beginning that you mentioned that No, no, it's, it's, it's a good thing. And in, in the part of the paper I cut for time's sake, I even, I even say uh, that modern technology is a wondrous revelation of a human possibility. It, it is part of what we're hardwired to be able to do. It's just not the whole story about us. It's only when we – it's not that one aspect of reason is technological reason. We only err when we identify that with all of reason. So I'm not, I'm not against modern – I'm not a Luddite. Uh, I'm not an agrarian. I don't even cut my own grass.
that gets not given that thing for parents for whatever benign religious reasons or moral reasons to want to play the genetic lottery when the victim might be the child who is born defective or with genetic diseases or bound for a unpleasant or unhappy life. That therefore we cannot permit that choice that a concern for the child a big question. Uh, the one you summarized my, my position correctly, uh, and here's, an, here's another way of looking at it, that the, the pro-choice position really isn't about choice at all, because what happens is if you say choices are only preferences or whims or values, then it becomes impossible to make a serious choice. I mean, you can't choose to be a Spartan or a Christian or or a philosopher, unless you think there's some foundation to the choice except arbitrary personal preference. So what modern liberty does is kind of suck the contents out of all choices but health and safety choices, which become more real than ever. So all of life becomes empty except health and safety, which becomes more and more of a moral imperative. Right. Okay. And so... What's, what's behind it then, the, the, the modern liberty is not about choice, it really is about control. It's about eliminating anxiety from the world, eliminating uncertainty from the world, making the world so risk-free that we're finally at home in it. And so the deep thought, I think, is all there is is a, 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 there, 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 there's, there's nature, and then there's human freedom. One being in nature is mysteriously self-conscious and has this mysterious freedom to push nature back. And this being hates nature because nature is just out to eradicate its particular existence. And so the whole thing is about imposing our will upon nature and nothing more than that. For example, I mean, there, 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 are, two, there, are, there are only two theories in the world that sophisticates take ser uh, uh, seriously. One is autonomy, the other is sociobiology. And, and, and every, and every libertarian website, they're all libertarian sociobiologists, but this makes no sense at all. It's like jumbo shrimp military intelligence or something. Uh, now, the sociobiologist says this, and I'm sure the real scientists here are going to say this is too simple, that all we are are really, really smart chimps. We are social, pair-bonding animals. And uh, anything else that appears to separate us from the other, there's nothing really important that separates us from the other animals. But, but here's the downside of sociobiology. The, it's, it's, the, here's what nature intends for us, to be born, spread our genes, raise our young, and die. And there's nothing else to life but that. 
Your dog is not bothered by that fact. An ant is not bothered by that fact. Even a dolphin is not bothered by that fact. We human individuals, for reasons you can't explain, sociobiology hate the guts out of that fact. And so we individuals use all our freedom. The more we think sociobiology is true, the more we work to make it untrue. Because can sociobiology begin to account for human technology? There ain't no dolphin technology worth talking about. They worked like the devil to find a little bit of chimp technology, and they do find a very little bit, but it's not much. But this conscious project to make all nature bow to our will, this is only human. And so either you're an autonomy guy or you're a sociobiology guy. But no one can take the advice of the sociobiologist, which is relax, be happy, be like the chimps. We just can't do that. It may be good advice, but we can't do it. And so I think it is about the conquest of nature to secure the existence of the individual. In the end of the day, we find it impossible to choose against that because everything else has been made more or less weightless. So it's not just God, because I think human beings, uh, you know, I, I do believe in God, but I think human beings at one time did live very well with God. But the problem is, not only can you not be a Christian today, it was hard. You can't be a Stoic today either. Yeah, uh, and it used to be the great Southerners were Stoics. Uh, that is, they had a conception of virtue that might be finally kind of weird, but really got them through the day pretty well. So, you know, all conceptions of virtue that say our purpose is higher than health and safety or just staying around are eroding. I mean, they're really gone. Uh, they teach in the public schools that we have, everything in the realm of virtue we have to be non-judgmental about or have no real opinion about. It's just, it's just up to you. Uh, you can have any opinion you want because if you can have any opinion you want, it means there's no truth behind any of those opinions. But about health and safety, we know there's truth there. We know alive, dead. Uh, sick, well, those distinctions then become more important than ever. Okay, that makes sense? Yeah, and if you're right about that, uh, it would help to explain uh, why the Libertarian Party is so small party. It's, the, it's, it's kind of a surprising fact if you're right about it, and that is that there really aren't very many Libertarians around, people who are genuinely uh, Libertarians, people who genuinely tell me Yeah, so a genuine libertarian would would be revolted by our policies on smoking and, and seatbelts and all that. And there are people like this, there just aren't very many of them. The most famous uh, libertarian blogger, very quickly, one after this answer we will be done. Uh, uh, Ronald Bailey, have you read, anyone read his uh, reason.com stuff? He's really mad at President Bush and Leon Cass and so forth because they're in favor of policies will, that will keep Ronald Bailey from living forever. And I'm not, you know, not exaggerating. So, uh, and again, Professor uh, Barnett, as far as I understand his work, 
he thinks Social Security is unconstitutional. But people like Social Security, and it kind of it gives us security. Uh, so anyone who really thinks, I mean, so the most dangerous thing for the Republican Party today, quickly, is to people who really want to revive the interpretation of the Constitution that would declare welfare state legislation unconstitutional. If the Supreme Court started to do that, then the Democrats would really make a comeback. Because I've, Professor Barnett, Professor Epstein, I have heard talk, and he really does think that anything that contradicts an economics textbook is unconstitutional. And this is not actually so. So, so, the, so in other words, this, this hardcore libertarianism that un, would undermine this, the government institutions to give everyone more security would be wildly unpopular. But it'll be a great lecture anyway, which you will enjoy. Thank you. Uh, please join me in thanking Professor Lawler. And also, uh, please join us for a reception, which will be held right outside here in the hallway. Uh, and you can continue speaking to Professor Lawler. Thank you. Thanks so much.